we've got a two-part series starting today on Puritan separatists and pilgrims. This is part one. thought about doing part two first, but it just wasn't coming together. So I have this question, and if you're over 18, you're not allowed to answer it. But if you're under 18, you have to. Here it is. You ready? This is your quiz. If April showers bring Mayflowers, what do Mayflowers bring? Pilgrims. Okay. Um, That's right. Pilgrims. Some of the older people are, whoa, I had never thought of that. Um, The Pilgrims. You remember the Pilgrims? I mean, this is the basis for Thanksgiving, right? The Puritans, the Separatists, the Pilgrims, all related of sorts. They're not only the start of our Thanksgiving holidays, and and not only did some come over on the Mayflower, but uh, Harvard University, started by the uh, Puritans. In fact, the Harvard Shield of Truth, Veritas, is uh, the Latin for truth, and it's uh, based upon the principles of the Puritan religion. Harvard originally started as a place to train Puritan ministers. Public education in America started by the Puritans because of a belief that to be a good Christian, you needed to be able to read your Bible. So all children were required to learn how to read because it would help the growth and the sustaining of a Christian country. That was the belief. And that was the premise for public education. Now, all of this is happening and unfolding in the 1600s. But to understand it properly, we need to get back into the flow of time. Now, a lot of you may think, why does he keep going over the same stuff over and over? It's because, A, not everybody's here each Sunday, and B, all of this interrelates. And so we, we follow the fabric through the tapestry, but sometimes we've got to go back and follow another fabric, and the two will cross and intermingle as we work our way through the tapestry, but we need to do it to have our full view. So let's keep in mind, the 1500s were a very turbulent time. In religion, the 1500s were a time of change unlike really any time since the first century. Um, If we look at the turbulent 1500s, just consider what happened in the 1500s to Western civilization and how things were upside down. In 1517, we've got Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. All of this in the 1500s. He's a Catholic priest. He's a monk, and he's nailing up 95 debate points of where he thinks the Catholic Church is outrageously in error, specifically on the selling of indulgences. During this 1500s, at the same time, Henry VIII, I say the same time, he's alive, he's communicating back and forth, wrote with Luther, wrote a book against Luther. Henry VIII in England is separating out the English church from the rest of the Roman church in saying the Pope is no longer head of the church in England. The head of the church in England, by the authority of God, is the God-ordained monarch, me. That's what he said. So it goes through me 
Henry VIII said, not through that guy in Rome. All of this, in the 1500s, we have John Calvin writing his institutes, setting up his Geneva Academy, taking uh, Protestantism to places it had never gone before. We have in Geneva also Bibles, and not just in Geneva, in Germany. Uh, Luther's translating from the Hebrew and Greek into German. In, in Geneva, they're translating the Bible into French, into Italian, into English, complete with notes. This has not been happening before. And, and, and it's not just within religion that the 1500s were turning the world upside down. It was just 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, which means he didn't come in through Galveston. <laughs> Um, 1492, Columbus is said. So it's the 1500s when the new world is really being discovered. I mean, all of it, all of, this is mind-boggling for people who thought they had everything in their hands. All of a sudden they find out there's this whole new world over there across the water with a whole bunch of different people. Native Americans who have never heard about God and Jesus. All of this has got the whole world up in all because now all of a sudden, hey, um, um, you you own you you run this country. You're a king, let's say, and you find out there's this whole brand new world, fabled to have lots of gold, fabled to maybe even have like water that'll keep you young. They have tomatoes. Europe didn't have tomatoes. They came from us. Corn. Hey, got all this great new food. I think I'd like to own that new place. And so you have these Western powers fighting to come own the new world and to civilize it and to develop it and to claim it for the king or the queen. All of this is going on during the same time period, and it's this big cauldron. Meanwhile, you're the Pope, you've got the Roman Church, and you see it slipping out of your hands like trying to hold water in your hand. And I can close my hand so tight and pour water in it, and ten seconds later, my hand is dry. I can't understand where it's going, because I can hold those fingers so tight together. But, and that's the way it was with the, the Catholic Church. It just seems to be dribbling out. So everybody's in a power grab, and yet everybody's on danger of someone else grabbing the power. And all of this is going on in the 1500s. Now, if we focus on England in the 1500s to get to the Puritans, in England we see there's a real religious tug of war going on. The tug of war is one Catholic versus Protestant. Who's going to have control? We don't think the way they thought in this regard. Our thought is, hey, peace, let everybody live together. You know, we, we're post-60s generation. Okay? I mean, hey, let it all hang out. Hey, whatever. Okay? They didn't have that mentality. They'd been existing for over a thousand years with one church. They, they didn't have a word, denomination. So the question was not, hey, okay, well, you be Catholic and we'll be Protestant. 
It wasn't that at all. It's who's going to control the one church? There is one church, Paul says in Ephesians. Who controls it? The Pope, that many of them thought was the Antichrist, or the Protestants would say, the Bible. Who's going to control the one church? So it's a tug of war. And it's a tug of war in England. Is the church going to be Catholic? Is the church going to be Protestant? There is only going to be one church. Everybody needs to be in the one church together. The one church was equivalent to the one government. See, we don't think that way because the guys who founded our country said we're going to separate church and state. It was not separated before they said that. If you're a citizen of the country, you have to be a member of the one church that went with the country. It was all one. So the tug of war is, we've got a national church, an international church, who's going to run it? Is it going to be Catholic? Is it going to be Protestant? What is it? Now, we know from what we've been covering about some of the Protestant issues what we have not done since we left Luther is deal with the Catholic Church, the Roman Church. So to understand the tug of war, we need to go back and understand a couple of things. We need to understand the changes that were taking place within the Catholic Church because it was not remaining stagnant. In addition to that, we need to see the political struggles of England. And out of these two pieces that we've not dealt with fully we'll come to understand better how the Puritans came to be and, and really establish a bedrock for the religion of America. When we get to it next week, you're going to find the Puritans are the source of so many things in America. You go to Europe. How many of y'all have been to Europe? A good bit of you. Have you noticed how the morals are different over there? I, you can go to a McDonald's in Germany and buy a beer. You don't buy a beer at McDonald's in America. They don't sell them. You can see advertisements in, in, in uh, who? Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah, well, that's a whole other world in itself. <laughs> okay, we're going to leave out that. But you, you, can, uh, you can go to, to almost any place in Europe, and it's not totally unusual to see a topless advertisement. Are a topless. I, the morals are very different in America than they are over there. There are things that are done in England that, that in America we would just be appalled over. Yet over there, it doesn't seem to be a big deal at all. And the major reason why is because our morals and ethics as Christians within this country have come through the Puritans initially. And we have a, 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 an, an ethic. So we're going to talk about that next week. But to get there, we've got to understand where these Puritans came from. So let's do this. Let's start with the changes in the Catholic Church. Reform was coming to the Catholic Church. The church was corrupt in a lot of ways. The Pope was doing things that were outrageous. The fundraising was over the top. The theology was all messed up in so many different areas. And... and, and, and the church itself was seeing change. Luther, when he's nailing those 95 theses up, did not say, I am a Lutheran. Bam, bam, bam. No, he was a Catholic. He was trying to change his Catholic church. He wasn't trying to start something new. He didn't start something new till he got excommunicated by the Pope. 
But there was Luther. There were others before Luther that were trying to make changes because they saw the corruption in the Catholic Church. I pulled a quotation out from a guy, uh, Father Savarinola, who in the late 1400s gave this Advent sermon. He said, in the primitive church in the New Testament, the chalices, that's uh, what the communion cup. The communion cup was of wood. But the, the authorities, the structure, the priests, the ministers, they were of gold. In these days, the church has chalices, communion cups of gold. And its ministers are of wood. Valueless. Now, you know, true, he got <laughs> murdered. But, uh, <laughs> or, or I guess burned at the stake. Maybe martyred, I guess is a better word. But there were changes that were being coming to within the Catholic Church. Now, who has seen the movie Princess Bride? I love that movie. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Remember? My name is Inigo Montoya. I'd like you to meet Don Inigo Loyola instead of Inigo Montoya. Inigo Lopez de Loyola. You know him as Ignatius Loyola. Ignatius Loyola comes into the Catholic Church at this time. He's born, he's a Spanish fella. He's born in Spain. He's born into the Catholic Church. Spain is a Catholic country. He is a knight, a soldier. He fights for the Spanish king. He's in battle. He gets gravely wounded in the like 1521 or something like that. And so he goes to the old family castle to convalesce. And he has a religious experience, a reawakening. And when he has this reawakening, the Spanish soldier pledges his life to saving souls takes an oath of poverty, says, I will take no money, but I will spend the rest of my life seeking to save souls. He not only does that, he founds what is commonly called now the Jesuit order. Where's Mor Moriarty? Didn't you go to some Jesuit school? Okay. A Jesuit college in Mobile and Jesuit high school in Dallas. Anybody else go to a Jesuit school? Hey, I've got some hands going up. Everybody heard of a Jesuit school? They're all over the place. Loyola is a Jesuit school. He founds the Jesuit order. Jesuit is a word that comes from Jesus. The Jesuits are the society of Jesus. They get papal recognition in 1540. And they have basically three goals. The Jesuits want to educate... And so they start setting up seminaries and colleges and universities throughout Europe. They not only want to educate, they want to convert. So they are missionaries. They're out there converting. You've seen the movie The Mission? Is it The Mission? The one about South America with the two Jesuit priests that come? If not, it's an excellent movie. Well worth seeing. Um, the Jesuits decide they're out not only to educate, they're out to convert... But then there's a third mission they take during these 1500s, and that is to stop Protestantism. And they go about doing it. Uh, Ignatius Loyola wrote a book. You can buy it today. The Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius. It's kind of a self-help book. Four Weeks to Better Holiness. That's what I would have titled it. Uh, it's laid out. 
It's laid out over four weeks, and he's just, that's what it is. He gives you meditations, prayers to say aloud, prayers to say silently, things to think about. And over four weeks, it's supposed to help you grow spiritually. A spiritual how-to book from the 1500s. You want to do it? Week one, that's the introduction where he sort of gets you primed and teaches you about sin. You spend your week confessing your sin. You spend your week uh, trying to, to figure out where you got your problems and what your issues are. Week two, you meditate and pray about the birth and life of Christ and you see Christ as a model for you and what He did. And you contemplate God Himself coming down and being born into the form of a man, what the ramifications of that are. Week three, you unfold the Eucharist and the death of Christ, and you meditate on it, and you, you, you see what happened, and you see what it does, and, and how it affects your life. And then week four is the resurrection and eternity that you spend with God, and the effects of it. And he's got all these exercises, spiritual exercises, mental exercises, where you try to figure out and, uh, what this means for you, and, and, and you meditate on it. Now, in addition to this Reformation movement, if you will, that's occurring within the Catholic Church, there's what some scholars call the Counter-Reformation also taking place. By Counter-Reformation, this is the movement trying to counter and stop Protestantism. The Catholics are not just going to go away easy. The Pope is not going to say, Ah, used to have England. Drats. It's gone. Oh, well, easy come, easy go. Man, I'm going to really miss having northern Germany. Those guys could cook sauerkraut. <laughs> I, that's, that, he's not letting it go that easy. The Catholic Church isn't. So the Pope calls, and actually it, it, the Council of Trent lasted through several Popes, but the Pope calls the Council of Trent. And it's a big meeting of all of the... the the, the, the power structure and the thought leaders of the Catholic Church and they come together and they try and reform abuses and they clarify their anti-Protestant positions. They deal with this idea of salvation by faith alone. They deal with it in real Catholic language, which is hard for us Protestants to put our arms around. They don't say that it's wrong, but they don't say that it's right. And you can read it, and it looks like it's faith plus works, which would not be right. And yet, that's not really what it says, and I don't think that's a fair interpretation. So I really struggled with it. And you'll find I did a cop-out uh, in the lesson. I just went to the Catholic Encyclopedia and quoted what they say it said, and quoted some of the actual provisions from the council itself as well, to try to give you a flavor. Because it's, it's almost, it's like, it, to, to me I read it, and, and I kind of landed this way, it's like the Catholic Church was saying, okay, the Protestants are probably right, it's salvation by faith alone, but we're not going to use that terminology because we're not going to admit that they're right, and we think that they don't emphasize enough how important the works are that come afterwards, so we're going to use this whole new terminology. That comes out of Trent. It's the Council at Trent where they decide and, and actually make a Catholic proclamation that the Apocrypha will be part of the Bible. Because the Protestants are saying no to the Apocrypha. And so this, is, this goes on. Now, what else happens? Sandy, the Spanish Inquisition. She shot me an email and said, you said you were going to talk about the Spanish Inquisition. I've been here every Sunday and you haven't mentioned it yet. <laughs> okay. The Spanish Inquisition. 
goes after the Protestants at this point. And this is an important part to understand. The, the Spanish Inquisition, Inquis, Inquisitio, I think is the Latin word. It was a, there was a, a Latin word that, that referenced the, a, a, a special way to handle crimes. This was back under Roman law. There is a special way to handle certain crimes where the same person did the investigation that did the prosecution that made the judgment. If you're being accused, it's really not a fair deal, all right? Just as the lawyer talking. But anyway, that's what they did. Certain crimes, you'd have one guy who'd investigate it, same guy would prosecute it, and the same guy would decide whether or not you're guilty. And, just for good measure, what your punishment will be. Okay? That was this uh, inquisitor guy. And so the Catholic Church adopted this as a means uh, at first of dealing with a Jewish problem of Jews who converted to Christianity and then turned away from that. And that had been going on for a couple hundred years. Well, in the 1500s, they decide, hey, this ought to work for Protestants too. Because they were originally Christians in the Catholic Church. Now they've turned away to heresy. So in Spain, the Inquisition starts. And there are hundreds and hundreds of arrested. I'm not sure the Inquisition was as big and bad as we think, as many of us think that it was. But there's no dispute that there are hundreds and hundreds arrested. That there are many, many that are hanged or burned at the stake because they are Protestants. There were two Lutheran churches that tried to start in Spain. They got shut down real quick. The king and queen of Spain held an iron hand in their country. And not only did they hold an iron hand in their country, but they extended that reach over into the Americas. Spain was actually more powerful in the Americas in the late 1400s and the 1500s than any other country. Oh, France had New Orleans. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and a little bit up north. And and, and then the Brits are going to be settling a little bit on the East Coast. But Spain's got like Florida. They get California. They get Mexico. They're all the way down there to Peru and, and, and uh, through Central America and South America. Spain is like really reaching out. And they do it under the guise not only of their power of king and queen, but the, the power of Catholicism. Now, England, we think of England, or I tended to grow up thinking of England as a superpower or, or a very powerful country, right? Okay, they weren't in the 1500s. They were actually pretty weak. I mean, if we go back, England's up there. England, don't I mean, even Scotland, they're rebelling against England half the time. It's not like they've got Scotland and Ireland in check, okay? So you got England up there. You got Spain down here. Spain is like really strong. England's kind of like, huh? <laughs> And now, let's go back to this English tug-of-war for control of the church. Here's who we've covered so far. You remember this fellow? Henry VIII. He's the one who took the church and separated, it, separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic system, if you will. But he was a Catholic. He just basically said, eh, this church uh, reports to me instead of the Pope. But he didn't really change that much of what was going on. Now, to get the church to go along with him, he had to get some Protestants in power. 
So some of the church hierarchy, Archbishop of Canterbury type stuff, they are kind of Protestant leaning. But even they have to whisper it because Henry VIII doesn't like all that newfangled Protestantism. He wrote a book against Luther. But he he wants people in place that at least don't report back to Rome because he doesn't want subversion. Now, he's got three kids that wind up taking the throne. His boy, Edward VI, you know, Henry VIII, you know, he had like 80 gazillion wives. He's just like busting a gut to finally have a son. He gets a son, Edward VI, and that son will become the next king of England. Edward VI, and then after Edward VI dies, because he only lives till he's like 17 or something. After he dies, his half-sister, Queen Mary, she looks pretty sour, doesn't she? To me, anyway. She takes over next. And then after she dies, her half-sister, Queen Elizabeth, takes over. So you've got three successive monarchs coming after Henry VIII that are all his kids. And they last for the next 50 years or so. Henry VIII is the one who makes himself head of the Catholic Church of England. His son takes over when he's not even a teenager yet. And so his son has handlers. When Edward the, 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 the sixth takes over, his handlers are the Protestants that Henry VIII put in charge so that they'd agree to walk from the Roman Catholic Church. Once Henry's gone, see, they, they say, okay. So now all of us, what's, uh, wasn't there a song about England and a pendulum that swings or something? What, what it? Yeah, England swings like a pendulum do. That's it. Thank you. Okay, that was probably written back then. Okay, because, okay, well, maybe not. Um, but the pendulum just starts swinging back and forth. And so, you know, it's, it's Catholic. And then, then uh, 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 it, with, with uh, Edward VI, it goes Protestant. And it goes way Protestant. They, they drop the Catholic liturgy. They get their own prayer book. Well, the problem is he dies at like age 17. And his half-sister, who'd been like kicked out of the family earlier, she goes, whoosh, Catholic. Because she's a Catholic girl. So she deposes all of the... She's called Bloody Mary because she kills all the Protestant rulers of the church. Not only was her mother Spanish, but she herself decides that she's going to marry Prince Philip of Spain, who's going to be the next Spanish king. So now here's England, a weak country. And they get this new woman ruler who probably herself is Spanish and she's trying to marry the Spaniards. And everybody thinks, well, it's because we're so weak. Now we're becoming Spanish and Spain's going to take over England. And there's a real concern in the country about it. And people are concerned not only... And she's taking the church back to the Catholic Church. She welcomes the Pope and his people back in. She's going Spanish Catholic for the whole country of England. It would be, you know, today you've heard the expression, if you use the word ain't or something, someone might say, uh, don't you know the Queen's English? You know, and our response is, of course she's English. What else would she be? Okay. It could, that whole joke could be lost if Mary has her way. 
And B, don't you know the Queen's Spanish? That's what, and and the country's very concerned, and the religious structure's very concerned. Spain is reaching out, they're taking over the New World, and it looks like they're taking over Europe. And the Pope's behind it. And the Pope's for it. But Mary dies. And the next daughter, Elizabeth, takes the throne. And the big question was, is she going Catholic? Is she going Protestant? Nobody knows for sure. She says, I'm going in the middle of the road. Okay, well, now that just sounded goofy to people. There's no middle of the road. You're Catholic or you protest the Catholic Church. You can't, this is like being half pregnant. <laughs> Are you pregnant? Well, sort of. No, it's yes or no. Okay? So she says, no, we're the one in the middle of the road. And some of her actions people perceive as being Catholic. Like, uh, first thing she does is she appoints uh, Matthew Parker as the, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Matthew Parker had been ordained before the Church of England had been excommunicated and before Henry VIII had taken him away from the Pope. So it was, it was a papal ordination. So she's basically putting a papist in as Archbishop of Canterbury, at least someone so that the, the, the Church of England can truly say, we can chart our bishops through church appointments and church ordination all the way back to the apostles. We have what's called apostolic succession. We can say this archbishop was appointed, this archbishop to succeed this archbishop, this archbishop, all the way back to the first archbishop of Canterbury, who was appointed by this pope to that see, and that pope had been appointed by this pope, by this pope, by this pope, and they trace that lineage all the way back they thought, to the apostles. And so she's, she's now ensured apostolic succession for her church. And the Protestants are saying, oh, she's going Catholic. Of course, she doesn't really go Catholic. In 1562, she has Parliament pass an Act of Uniformity. Do you know what the Act of Uniformity is? It says, if you're going to preach, you've got to agree to follow all of these rules and these 39 articles of faith. You've got to use our prayer book. Now, that was not a Catholic prayer book. Oh, it had some Catholic things. The priest would wear Catholic-looking garb, which really upset the Protestants. It was a huge fighting point. They would sign the cross when they received communion. That's in the book. So the Protestants are still saying, why do you got all this Catholic stuff in there? But the Catholics are saying, time out. You're making us say that the Pope's got no authority. You're making us swear our allegiance to you as head of the church. And finally, Spain and, and the Pope do this throwdown thing where they send the Spanish Armada up. But it's taken Spain long enough to where England's actually, under Elizabeth, built up a bit of a navy. They're still the underdogs, but the British Navy whips the Spanish Armada and basically brings to an end Spain as a world powerhouse and the ascendancy and rise of England. And that gives Elizabeth a lot more confidence as she continues to move through her church. Now, the separatists start forming here. The separatists are the ones who said, time out. 
I'm not into this middle-of-the-road stuff. We're not Catholics. We are Protestants. See, the separatists were Protestants started by Protestants who, during the reign of Mary, had, had fled the country because they were getting killed and had all gone to Geneva and had studied under John Calvin and Theodore Beza. So they're real convicted Calvinists. And they come back to the country because it looks like the coast is clear. And then all of a sudden they're being told they have to worship with all of this priest garb and the crossing and the, uh, all of this. And they're saying, no, 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 I don't like that at all. I'm not going that way. We're just going to form our own church. Well, you can't. It's illegal. So you know what they do? Midweek Bible studies. Home Bible studies. They call them prophesyings. Not in the sense of, I foresee that Louis Miori is going to beat me in racquetball. And y'all would know I was a false prophet if I said that. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not anything like that. It's the, the, the New Testament and, and Old Testament concept of a prophet being prophesying, being a, a proclaiming of God's word. So these would be midweek services where they would read a portion of scripture and for 45 minutes to an hour and a half, teach it, expound on it. It was a midweek Bible study. Now, this, this, this got bad. There was this new archbishop, John Whitgift, who banned it. Can you imagine that? This is England, 1583. It's illegal to have a Bible study in your home with anybody other than your immediate family. So they would make up all these other reasons for going to each other's houses. Whitgift bans home Bible studies. And people start getting arrested over it. I want to tell you the story of one fellow. His name was Henry Barrow. We're almost finished with class here. But I want to tell you about Henry Barrow. Henry is well-trained. He goes to Cambridge, all right? He's a Cambridge guy. He studies law. You've got to give you a soft place in your heart for him. Also tells you he wasn't all that bright. He studies law and lives a decadent life. Things that would turn you shades of blue. He is a man of the world in every sense of that. He runs with a decadent crowd. He's the kind of guy you don't want near your daughters or your sons. He's the kind of guy that scares you. Frivolous and sinful. He and his buddies are walking down the street when they hear some Protestant separatist want to be pilgrim ultimately, Puritan. These are labels that get attached later. They hear this guy preaching in a side building. Henry Barrow goes in. His friends start mocking him. Hey, why are you going in there? Ah, ha, 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 ha. Hey, go in there and convert the Christians. Ah, ha, 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 ha. You know, because his friends are as decadent as he is. He goes in. We don't know why. Did he go in to make fun? Did he go in out of curiosity? We don't know. But he went in there and the Holy Spirit just hit him smack in the middle of the eyes. And it was like, whoa. And when that service was over, he turned around, he walked back out with his friends 
and he was 180 degrees different. An entire life change. He tells his friends, I'm now dedicating my life to God and his gospel. And he becomes a separatist. He, he says, this Catholic Protestant thing, it's, it's, it's not the question of the tug of war. What it's a question of is following Jesus with all of your heart. And there's a separatist who's a real famous guy named Greenwood who's in prison at the time for his religious beliefs. And Barrow goes to visit him in prison. Barrow, okay, I'm here. The name of the prison is The Clink. Okay? You ever get thrown in The Clink? Hickman, you, you heard it referred to as The Clink? It comes from that. The name of that prison. It was like one of the worst prisons. It's burned down in the 1800s. There's still part of a wall there. But it was one of the worst prisons in England. It was called the clink. Okay? He goes to visit at the clink. Greenwood. And they say, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm here to follow his faith and his religion. I need his counsel and stuff. What? Are you one of him? Yeah. Okay, well, you can pack your belongings and leave them here because we're arresting you too. So they just arrest him, throw him in the jail cell with uh, Greenwood. Next five years, he's in there. And together, they're writing. And I didn't animate this slide well, but their, their writings are four points that the local church is not... It's not the country. It's not the city. It's not the subdivision. It's, it is those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the real church. He says this whole idea of the queen of England running the church, the queen's ministry, it's false. It's an anti-Christian ministry. We're not going to use this book of common prayer that, that's been written by the queen's people. We're going to pray the prayers that the Holy Spirit leads us to pray. The book of common prayer doesn't give any room for extemporaneous praying. We're going to pray what the Holy Spirit moves us to pray. It doesn't leave room for any preaching. We're going to preach. The Word is going to be the center of our services. And for that matter, it's not the church Episcopal structure that dictates to us who's going to run our churches and who's going to be our preacher. Each church ought to be able to pick their own. These are renegade ideas. To us, it's now normative. This is normal. Back then, this was blazing a brand new trail. The Queen doesn't like it. Parliament doesn't like it. In 1592, they pass an act. This is literal translation. Uh, not translation. This is the English. This is what it says. Quote, an act for the punishment of persons obstinately refusing to come to church. <laughs> Parliament passes an act for the punishment of persons obstinately refusing to come to church. Are you obstinately refusing to come to church, John? If so, here's what the act says. You don't come to church, you get arrested. You get put in jail and you got up to three months to think about it. Within three months, you either change your mind and say you're going to start coming to church regularly. And by church, not one of these little rinky-dink prophesying things that are illegal. We're talking about the Church of England, the one church. You either come to the one church of England on a regular basis and do it right, or you get arrested, you get put in jail for three months. If you'll repent, fine, you can start coming to church. If you don't, you get deported. 
just kick you out of the country. And if you come back in, we'll arrest you and murder you. Capital punishment. Death. We don't have that here, which is why sometimes it's easier to find parking places than others. Here's our points for home. Thank God for our religious freedom in this country. Let's just thank God for our religious freedom in this country. And there really were people who fought and died for our opportunity to do this. And we don't know their names oftentimes anymore. And we don't know their hearts and their attitudes. But you go back a few hundred years and there literally were people who said, I will die to ensure that my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren can worship freely. And that's what we have the benefit of. And we need to thank God for that. Part and parcel with that, the Hebrews 10.25 passage really comes home to me. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Now, that's not hit each other over with a, with a hammer. You know, this is not an act for those obstinately refusing to come to church. Okay. But in the spirit of what David said this morning, we got the freedom not to come. But heavens, look at the opportunity we have to come. And let's encourage one another. I want to tell each one of you here, I'm glad you're here this morning. I met a visitor who's here this morning. I got my friends who are here this morning. I, I got people that I, I swear. I'm glad you're here this morning. Thank you for coming. You could have left right after church. And I want to encourage you to come back. And I want you, as I want myself, to do our best to present ourselves to God as someone who's approved as workmen or women, who don't need to be ashamed and correctly handle the word of truth. Now, why do I stick that in as a point for home? Because I am so impressed at people who gave their lives to study the scriptures and to understand them and to figure out how they applied and when they understood them, would stand on them to the point of death. And I'm a bit ashamed of myself that I don't spend the time I should studying the scriptures. And I want to urge you to do that as I urge myself to do it. Those are my points for home. Please come to our house and eat lunch with us. Would you pray with me first? And this will also be a prayer for the food. Lord, we do thank you for uh, uh, the opportunity to worship together. We thank you for giving us not only the freedom to worship, but giving us your word that we can study. We can study it together. We can talk about what we believe and understand it to mean, and we can study it at home. Those are wonderful opportunities, Lord, that we confess to you we do not always recognize and take advantage of. But, Lord, as part of that confession, we ask not only for, for forgiveness from you, but for strength and wisdom and courage and motivation to, to grow in this area. Thank you for everybody that's here today, and I ask you to specifically encourage each one with an understanding that, that you not only work in the big picture of history, but in this private, personal history of our lives. And so touch each one with that. Lord, bring folks to the picnic today. 
and bless the food and bless our time together. In Jesus we pray. Amen.